Hello and welcome to the Empowered Hormone Podcast, where we pull apart all those taboo topics, periods, parasites, poos, hormones and more. Let's question everything you've been taught about your body. I'm your host, Sheridan Decker, a gin-loving gut health nerd passionate about debunking myths on birth control, period pain and IBS. If you struggle with bloating or your period is less than pretty, then join me as we chat about everything relating to gut and hormone health. Hello and welcome back to part three of the gut health series with Bella Linderman from the Functional Gut Health Clinic. So if you haven't listened to uh, part one on parasites, which I always find very fascinating, how to treat them, what to do about them, why they're there, uh, all those ins and outs of parasites. And if you haven't listened to part two on bacteria and bit of a special one on bacteria because there's a lot of information in there but we don't just look at the large intestine. Bella's also shared a lot of information on SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and once again given you lots of practical tips and tricks on looking for the root causes, root causes of your symptoms which I always harp on about. Um, going from symptoms to solutions people there is always a cause for things you're experiencing um, but also giving you some actionable herbs that you can start to look into or questions you can start answering and yeah Bella's kindly shared all this information with us and we're also jumping into part three today which is microbiome restoration so thank you so much Bella for sharing all this information with us you're a wealth of knowledge and it is a pleasure to have you here oh no worries this is my favorite topic so I'm like so excited about this (laughs) Yeah, yep. I actually need to agree with you on that because I feel like it's not um, it's not given the beauty and the attention that it deserves because from personal experience and our clinical experience, I see a lot of women who start doing the either the parasite or the bacterial work and they get a couple months in and they actually start to feel better and their symptoms start to get better. And then it's kind of like, oh, sweet, mm. you know, I'm feeling better bye, I don't need to see you anymore. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, what about the microbiome restoration? It's it's so important. And I know I left it for way too long, but it is just another key part in the whole gut healing journey, isn't it? Absolutely. And clinically, we see that exact same thing in our clinic too. It's really hard when people start to feel a bit better when you get rid of the infection load stuff to convince them to hang around to do this backend work. But the clients who hang around and do this backend work are the ones that don't come back and see us in 12 months time because they've finished the process. The ones who usually drop off after they've got a bit of the infection load out of control and they haven't fixed their microbiome, they're usually the ones that are more likely to come back and see us because symptoms are starting to creep back again. So if that helps anyone out there. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yep, yep, true. And you know what? We've actually got no excuse because most people who've come and seen you or me, they've done uh, some form of comprehensive stool test. So they actually know how like low those levels of good gut flora can be or how much leaky gut damage there is or, you know, those, those undergrowths of those good bacteria that we kind of talked about last time. We know that they're not there, but we seem to get 
caught up in just, uh, I don't know, rebalancing everything else that it's like you said, like they do forget about it. And then when your symptoms start to come back, you're like, oh, wait a second. I I know why. Then there's no good guys there. Yeah, I know. We need to make microbiome restoration sexy. And I don't know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So why do we need to restore the microbiome? Please share. Oh, yeah. Okay. My favorite question. All right. So let's get into it. So once you put all the hard work into removing the bad bugs, the pathogenic organisms, um, you know, and addressing the overgrowth, the bacteria, then we need to support our clients with microbiome restoration. So this means bringing back good abundance and diversity in the large intestine of that good gut bacteria, right? Those trillions of species that are a part of our microbiome. So to help with understanding how important the gut microbiome is, I think it's helpful to know what the microbiota do for us. So let me rattle off a big long list of all of the good stuff that they do. Um, please tell me to explain something if I if I go over it too quickly. So basically these good gut bugs work with our human cells to help us support our immune system. They help with motility in the colon. So anyone who's got rid of infection load and they're still constipated or they still have diarrhea, it's probably because you need to address the microbiome. Um, They help improve our nutrition status because they help us absorb certain vitamins, minerals, nutrients from our food. They help us get energy from our carbohydrates that that we eat. Um, They help us with metabolizing things uh, like xenobiotics um, and things uh, from the environment. They help us with anti or um, pro-inflammatory, you know, things that can happen in the body. Uh, They can help us with weight management. They can help us stabilize our mood, would you believe? Uh, They can help us with blood glucose control. So, you know, a lot of the blood glucose dysregulation stuff, inflammatory weight gain, diabetes, there's a microbiome element to that. Um, They also help us if our good gut bugs are nice and strong then ultimately that infection load those parasites that salmonella those bad bugs can't back into come back into our body and colonize Um, and then one more thing i want to mention are these things called scfas so short chain fatty acids short chain fatty acids are basically the colon end products um, of bacterial carbohydrate fermentation. I know this is like getting out there, but it's just, um, they're super important byproducts for our human body. Basically, we want good, strong SCFA production because the better um, our body is at doing that um, and that our microbiome is at doing that, then generally the better our overall health. So bottom line here is that more diverse our gut microbiome, the more healthy we are likely to be. So diversity is key for health. If that's the only thing you take away from this podcast, (laughs) that's what I want you to know. The more diverse your microbiome, the more likely you are to have good health. A lack of diversity is correlated. Like we've got the science. It's correlated with allergies, asthma, obesity, insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, um, body-wide inflammation, just to name a few. So if diversity is key, how do we get diversity? (laughs) Yes. So we need a diverse diet. Um, And that's just really, and I think this is where it gets really tricky when people aren't able to tolerate plants, but 
plant foods, so fruits, veggies, grains, nuts, seeds, like all of those foods, um, the more diverse our diet and the plants that we can tolerate and consume, that's what these good gut bugs feed off. So it, diverse diet is what it comes down to. And a lot of people can't tolerate a diverse diet because they've got infection load and inflammation and all of these things going on in their body, which is why we don't do this microbiome restoration piece of the puzzle until the back end when we've got all the other stuff sorted and people can tolerate diversifying out their diet yeah yeah for sure for sure that totally makes sense um to circle back quickly on those short chain fatty acids that actually shows up in our some of our gi mapping as well doesn't it so you can start to get an idea of where your gut health is at Yes. And um, one of the main short chain fatty acids that we look for, um, for like just a really good overall health indicator, there's three, there's acetate, propionate and butyrate are the three main ones. Um, But butyrate is probably the main one that we are commonly looking at right now to work out, you know, like, um, what's your overall health. And this is really embarrassing. Like, the you basically on your lab you want it to be like over like up around 30 that's the higher end of the scale but the higher the number kind of the better so a short chain fatty acid butyrate level of about 30 is great I did my stool test as a practitioner I'm like dusting my hands off going mine's gonna be perfect (laughs) it was it was seven how embarrassing it's really bad no but I had a parasite in my defense I had a parasite so (laughs) yeah yeah true but was your were you just low in your good gut flora then yeah, so this is this is right after I had that bout of salmonella poisoning. It was that stool test. So it all kind of fits, right? You know, I had that opportunistic bacteria, had a parasite again, and my butyrate production was down because I didn't have that many good gut bugs producing the short chain fatty acids because the parasite was eating all the good gut bugs um, and the salmonella was interrupting or um, overgrowing and taking up space where all those good gut bugs should be as well. Did you say the parasite was eating the good gut bugs? Yes, I did. Did you know parasites feed off beneficial bacteria? I I actually genuinely did not know that. I didn't know that until maybe a year and a half ago. Dr. Jason Horolak published a whole heap of research about how parasites don't feed off carbs. They feed off beneficial strains of bacteria who feed off the carbs. Wow. Wow. That's mind blowing. Yeah. (laughs) I know, right? So do you not need to worry about reducing sugar intake when you're trying to kill off a parasite then? Because, you know, everyone's talking about trying to remove the food of the parasite. Well, if it's feeding off your good gut flora, then what's yeah. the... That's a million dollar question. And I'll get back to you when I sort that one out. But at the moment, we're still using lower carbohydrate diets to help our clients because we still know the opportunistic bacteria yeah. feed off the carbs as well. Um, so they're still going to get symptoms from the opportunistic bacteria and yeast and stuff feeding off carbs it might not be the parasites but there's other things that will be feeding off contributing to symptoms yeah for sure for sure so Mm. who are the key players in the gut microbiome for optimal health then who are we trying to feed yeah okay so I feel like I might go into too much detail on this. So for anyone listening, um, maybe put this on like double speed, but there are four main players and I think it is so important to know about them. And that's why I want to go into a lot of detail on who they are because you want to see them on your stool test and you want to see them in good, strong levels. So the first player is bifidobacteria species. All right. So bifido can get extinct from a poor diet and from antibiotics. All right, so bifido helps 
with colonization resistance. So it stops all of those bad bugs from coming in and setting up camp. It helps keep the colon acidic, which prevents bad bugs um, from living in the colon because that's the, the large intestine, right? The colon is where they live and the microbiome. So we don't want them in there. So bifidobacteria helps make your colon more acidic. It protects the, the gut from damage uh, and it also helps with healing damage. It helps with modulating our immune system so we don't overreact to everything like foods. Yeah. Uh, it protects from viral infections and it also helps produce B vitamins. So basically um, in terms of like uh, conditions and things, boosting levels of bifidobacteria helps with healing a leaky gut. It can help with mood disorders. It can help protect us from insulin resistance. Uh, it's correlated with lowering levels of uh, LPS or these toxins within our body that can make us feel sick. And some strains can actually produce GABA, um, which is really oh, helpful for wow. yeah, major yeah, depression clients. That's super fascinating. I knew about the B vitamins and for mm. me already that was when I learned about that, I was like, wow, that's interesting because it just goes to show that it's so much more than um, getting things from our diet sometimes as well. It is what's actually growing in your gut and how you're absorbing and what you're producing. But the producing of the GABA is super interesting as well. Yeah, exactly right. So you can never have too much bifidobacteria. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So that's the first group. The second group is lactobacillus. So this is the other um, probiotic um, species that you've probably heard about in the supplements that you've been taking. Um, there's only a very small amount of lactobacillus in the gut. They actually play a bigger role in the vagina. So about 70 to 90% of the vaginal um, ecosystem is lactobacillus strains. Yep. Um, they play a more moderate role in the gut. So they're really easy to grow. They're found in fermented foods. And the key benefits that they provide, again, is this colonization resistance against the bad bugs. Um, short chain fatty acid and lactate production, which are these byproducts of bacterial fermentation that support the body and help feed us. They help keep the pH more acidic in the colon. Again, we said an, a more acidic colon is good for protecting against the bad bugs and colonization organization. They can produce GABA as well. And they help with synthesizing polyphenols, which are these things that are, are good for our body as well, these um, byproducts from plants that can help us. The thing about lacto is that you can actually have too much lacto, but this very rarely occurs. Um, so this might happen in a few people that have had surgery and have a short bowel. So people who have had surgery and a short bowel, I'd be careful about taking uh, lactobacillus supplements and trying to boost their levels too much in your body um, because they can get this thing called D-lactate acidosis. So lactobacillus, um, because it plays such a large role in vaginal health, it's mm. typically associated with uh, thrush or poor vag vaginal health symptoms? Yeah, exactly right. So if you don't have enough lacto, then you can get yeast overgrowth in that environment. Definitely. Is that then linked into, um, you know, if you've got low lacto in the gut, would that be linked to the vaginal microbiome or are they two completely separate microbiomes? Kind of like a, you know strep you see strep mm. appear in the gut but you can also get strep throat so to speak um are yeah. those linked in any way 
Yeah, do you know what? I don't know. I'm assuming that they're linked, but I don't know how linked they are. Um, I do know that like if you have a yeast overgrowth in your gut, for example, you're more likely to have yeast elsewhere in the body. I don't know how it works with lacto. That is a really good question. If you find the answer, let me know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was just thinking about the other day because then also, yeah, that yeast one's really interesting as well because I've been talking to this lady who specializes in skin and she has actually been talking about some acne it's actually a yeast formation of acne and women get yeah. it on their face and it's like really like kind of like the small bumps that I don't know if you see it in clients but I see they get on the back of their arms and things from uh, like a yeast or a, or a mold kind of overgrowth or infection but yeah she was talking about the acne on the face being yeast based um and that sort of imbalance and then I was thinking oh I wonder if that's ever linked to like vaginal yeast imbalances or gut yeast imbalances or you know you think it is because the body's so integrative right like nothing acts in isolation yeah, yeah I'd assume it would be Absolutely. It makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yes. So we've got bifobactam and we've got uh, lactobacillus. What was the third one? Yeah, okay. I like this guy, Acomancia. Um, I say guy. I don't know if it's a girl or a guy or bacteria. <laughs> I say Acomancia, the ideal, you know, they're, they're not a big population easy either, but Acomancia are really interesting. They can live in the the mucus inside your gut. So basically there's this mucus kind of layer in your in your microbiome. Like it's all through your whole GI tract and it basically lives in that mucus layer. Um, it's really, really important for metabolic health, acomancia. So type 2 diabetes, blood sugar dysregulation, inflammation. Um, it's really helpful for diet and weight loss interventions as well. Clients who have higher, better levels um, of acomancia usually find weight loss and dieting interventions more, uh, will work easier for them. Um, and But that said, you know, you want good, strong levels, but you also don't want it too high because if the organism is too high, um, then you can also get... Uh, this excess inflammation as well from having too high levels. So basically we use acomancia as like a bit of an overall marker for how healthy and diverse is your microbiome. Um, and if it's in good, strong levels, then it's probably a good indication that your, your good gut bugs aren't doing too bad. Low levels of acomancia are highly correlated with increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut, unfortunately. So to help with leaky gut healing, we often need to increase bifido and acomancia species. And, you know, you can add in L-glutamine and these other nutrients to heal the gut lining, but actually addressing the microbiome we have found clinically is more important to help with healing leaky gut. I was listening to um, something from, I don't think it was Jason Horlick. There's another guy who's in a similar field to him, and I can't remember the name of him off the top of my head, um, but he was talking about acomantia feeding off mucus. And I had this yes. client who was seeing a lot of, um, it looked, it kind of, this is, you know, too much information for some people, but I know you. everyone looks at their poo who listens to my podcast anyway. Yes. Um, but it looked like mucus in the stools, but it was more kind of looked like worm parasite type things. And they tested it and they looked at it and it had, you know, it, it wasn't anything, so to speak. They were just saying, you know, lots of scientists looked at it and they just said, oh, we think it's just mucus. And then she did a GI map and found really, really, really high levels of acomantia in the stools. Yeah. And yep. there is a correlation between the mucus and acomantia, isn't there? 
Yeah, so basically, um, for yeah for really high so people can have a lot of inflammation and a lot of mucus production to help address that inflammation in the colon and acomancia will actually come in there and metabolize or eat up all of that mucus and it helps keep mucus levels under control in the presence of lots of inflammation yeah wow wow that's yeah that's super fascinating um so what was the fourth one because there's no way i can say that one yeah okay so the fourth chi is for Kali bacterium prasnitzii what a cool name right um he's actually the most abundant bacteria in the gastrointestinal tract um we ideally want his population to be about 25 to 30 percent of of the stool gut bugs the stool flora um his benefits like so many benefits linked to this guy he's the major butyrate producer which is that short chain fatty acid we were talking about before he's overall anti-inflammatory he has a huge anti-inflammatory role he's linked to the reduction of inflammation in obesity and diabetes high levels are linked with better mood in those with depression um he's considered to be an important indicator for overall gut health as well so um you know the higher the levels of of for bacterium prasnitzii probably the better off your overall um, gut microbiome is going to be the problem with this guy is that he's killed off really easily um, by chemotherapy and he doesn't survive well when people have Crohn's or celiac disease are on a gluten-free or a low FODMAP diet because he survives off a lot of those highly fermentable fiber foods like onion garlic um, artichokes, uh, asparagus, yes. uh, lentils, brassica yeah. family veg, like those foods that people um, who have, um, who, you know, who are on a low FODMAP diet aren't typically eating. Yeah, wow. Wow, you're, you're right. And I talk to people about this quite a lot, but it is so important to reintroduce those um, low or high FODMAP foods back into your diet. Because like you said, I don't know what your experience was or if you were, but I was on a low FODMAP diet for a really long time because it just controlled my symptoms and not sort of understanding or knowing why. Um, but long term, you think, well, is that is that really what we want to be doing? You know, we really want to be adding these prebiotic foods back into your diet because good bacteria like these guys are not going to survive without all that food. Yeah, exactly right. So I think this is why I love this work is because this is such an intricate little environment and we know about these big players. There's probably others, but I think it's really important to help our clients with, you know, this microbiome restoration piece for their overall health. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And strongly linked into those bacteria is like you've mentioned a few times is leaky gut. And this is something I very commonly see in clients and I'm sure you do too. So can you explain a little bit more about leaky gut to us? Absolutely. So um, it's leaky gut is often referred to. So basically the gut lining is like the body's second skin. The intestinal lining are the fence between the outside, sorry, the inside of your intestines and your bloodstream. They separate the two and their job is to control what is allowed access to your bloodstream, like nutrients, and what is not allowed into your bloodstream, like pathogens, toxins, and undigested food. That stuff stays inside the 
inside the small intestine. So these epithelial cells, this, this gut lining is kind of like the bouncers in a nightclub, right? They want to keep the good guys in and the bad guys out. So when you have a leaky gut, it's like all the doors are open between your intestines and your bloodstream. And you get all of these big food molecules, these toxins, these pathogens that are normally not allowed into your bloodstream. They're flowing freely into there and they make your immune system wake up and start firing. And this is called an inflammatory immune response and it causes all sorts of symptoms for people. So this leaking can happen in two ways. We can get particles that move through where the two cells are joined together and you can also get it moving through the broken down cells themselves. Okay, um, so there's the two different ways that you can get uh, that leakiness in the gut lining. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it's um, an area that's quite interesting because we do, or I feel like we're seeing more and more of a prevalence of autoimmune conditions and these, you know, systemic inflammatory conditions and allergies and whatnot and like mm. anything there's a reason for it and I think often it does come back to that leaky gut lining and that you know intestinal permeability between those um epithelial cells yeah absolutely so I, I think that's really important like how do we get a leaky gut you know like we need to be coming and addressing that as a root cause so i think for um most of our clients that we see clinically the most common causes for their leaky gut is things like poor diet um bad bugs i know c diff is particularly good at just obliterating the gut lining <laughs> uh, toxins that destroy the gut lining dysbiosis or not like we said not having enough of the beneficial strains like the Fecali bacterium and the acomancia and the lacto and the bifido strains um you know stress is another big thing that can break down the gut lining you know they did those fighter pilot studies where they looked at the permeability of their gut lining before a stressful flight and then after and they found out that just the stress from that episode of flying was wow. enough to wow yeah. that's incredible just yeah just stress wow yep medications and toxins as well there are tons of medications and, and environmental toxins that can break down our gut lining so I think working on leaky gut is a really key piece for healing for people and and supporting those main four bacterial players is an important piece of that puzzle for healing leaky gut yeah for sure so when you're talking about you know that stress response I think that's um, sort of quite obvious to people when they feel stressed and if you've done that GI testing then you know whether you've got parasites or bacteria or those kinds of things going on when you're talking about diet what do you think are some of the let's just for better use of words what are some of the worst things in your diet you could be eating that would be impacting that gut lining for uh, leaky gut or yeah. for the good gut bugs for leaky gut yeah absolutely yeah so I think I mean gluten is a big one like massive proteins in gluten containing grains for a lot of people gluten just punches holes in the gut lining unfortunately um so you know a lot of our diet advice for clients who are working on healing leaky gut it's get rid of the gluten out because um, it's just really hard to digest um, and we don't want it compromising the good work that we're trying to do Dairy can be also highly inflammatory for a lot of people for a lot of reasons, a lot of different reasons. Um, if you've done a food sensitivity test and you found foods that you actually um, have a sensitivity to because in the past your leaky gut has allowed those foods to flow through uh -huh. your gut lining into your bloodstream. Yeah sensitivities are huge as well I mean there's tons more like sugar and inflammatory foods and processed foods but like they're kind of the big um 
gluten, dairy food sensitivities, inflammatory foods. Yeah, are the main for sure. So that we're thinking to, about. Let's just say to avoid leaky gut or to limit yeah. our susceptibility to leaky gut, we obviously need to support uh, those four key good bacteria that you talked about. So, how do we go about doing that? Oh, yes. So back to diversity. So if we want a diverse microbiome, we need a diverse diet. So diet diversity, diet diversity, just like if you take one thing away from this podcast, diet diversity will help support your good gut bugs. Um, We also use prebiotic supplements with a lot of our clients just to help feed up because prebiotics are like food for the good gut bugs. Um, And we found that's another really good way to build up diversity. For um, diet diversity, though, plants, plant foods. So we generally put clients on like a whole foods plant-based diet with lots of fiber because don't forget they've addressed all the infection load they're less reactive to foods and they can start slowly adding these foods in so polyphenol rich foods like dark black and blue fruits nuts and seed dark colored vegetables um you know like eggplant or aubergine and um black grapes uh blueberries those sorts of things prebiotic rich foods and foods that are high in phos and goss so phos and goss is um, fructo oligosaccharides and galacto oligosaccharides so these are high fodmap foods so people with SIBO will know about these foods um i think the thing about these foods is if you have SIBO they're not going to work for you but if you don't have SIBO if you've addressed that you've addressed the root causes then now's the time to start adding these foods back in because phos and goss foods feed up for Carlybacterium, who's remember we said we want him to be like 25 to 30 percent of your microbiome we've got to feed him up so Foss and Goss foods are things like uh, we said onion garlic asparagus legumes brassica family vegetables um, they're all really good things that we can add in and then prebiotic-like and probiotic-rich foods. So sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, all your fermented foods are brilliant as well. Is with um with these prebiotic foods, like you said, because we're in that part three of this three-part series and we're talking about now gut restoration. What if you didn't do part one and two? What if you didn't address the parasites and what if you didn't address the bacteria and you just went, hey, this, you know, I feel like I've got gut issues. I'm just going to chuck in these fermented foods. Are you going to be symptomatic from it? Or, you know, is prebiotic rich foods like our kombucha is it always a good thing yeah that's a really good question so some people because of the makeup of their microbiome will be okay but the majority of people eating these highly fermentable foods will make them not feel great it will give them more symptoms and that is a massive clue that there's some sort of imbalance in your gut and that you should probably get that investigated yep yep for sure so if you can't handle those some of those prebiotics that you mentioned is there prebiotic supplements that are safer or less symptomatic for those who yeah who may be reacting to some of the others yeah I think it really depends on the client we found clinically but um, for whenever we're working on microbiome restoration there is a prebiotic that will feed up all four of those main players and that's partially hydrolyzed gargum or PHGG. It's pretty easy to get your hands on um, globally. Uh, So you can usually get that online or from your health food store. Um, And we usually give that to clients to build up those four main players very, very slowly. Okay. If you increase it too quickly, you will get bloating and gas and stool changes. So you've got to go super, super, super slow. Um, But sometimes if they can't, tolerate a lot of the foods that's a really good way to get in there and get the food for your good gut bugs started 
Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So how do we know then when we can start to add in these prebiotic fibres? How do we know when it's safe? How do we know when we've gotten rid of those um, parasites and bacteria and can start to do the repair work, do the fun work? Yeah, that is a, a super, super good question. Um, I think, you know, sometimes clients feel so incredibly good and you're like, okay, we're pretty certain that all of the things going on for you are, are clear and we don't need to retest, but majority of the time we're retesting. Um, so we're checking that infection load is clear. So we've got rid of those parasites, bacteria, yeast, those opportunistic strains, and then we're moving on to the microbiome restoration piece of the puzzle. Um, and yeah, we use our DNA PCR stool tests again, which um, sometimes, or we'll use more of like a microbiome mapping stool test, um, which will give us more of an overview of what's going on in in the the colon the good gut bugs in the colon yeah yeah for sure so how long do you think this restoration work can take because we spoke at the start that parasites were you know we went oh I don't know 30 to 60 days maybe depending on adrenal and liver and bacteria we kind of said around the same um, time frame obviously depending everyone's different depends if it's Mm -hmm. SIBO or it's just in the large colon so what about microbiome restoration yeah that is the million dollar question. And I don't know the answer to that yet. So everybody is so different. So it can take months, you know, for some people, uh, it can take like a year or more for other people. I guess it really just depends on what's your baseline. What are you starting with? You know, how good, what's the diversity or abundance of those good gut microbes when you get this process going? So really with this part of the process, it's slow and steady wins the race. So slowly working on your diet diversity, you know, you don't just walk into a a gym and, and use the, I don't know, I'm good at the gym analogies, use the uh, yep. 20 kilo dumbbells, right? You're starting off with the two kilos and you're building up really slowly as a person like me who has no muscle mass. Yep. Um, so, you know, it's the same thing with your diet. You start off slow and, and low and slow wins the race here. And once you get that diet diversity in, you can start to eat really good, you know, amounts of fiber. You can get those prebiotic supplements in and you're using all the tools where they, well, then you're probably at the point where you're bringing diversity back. And so, I don't know months to years (laughs) yeah yeah for sure and obviously this is something that people can do by themselves as well you know like if you don't have a lot of symptoms um, or any symptoms really but you go hey I do want to improve my gut health because you know it sounds like the good thing to do and I know it's probably related to other stuff you can start in with um with some of these prebiotic supplements um But yeah, we will wrap it up on there today because I know that there was so much information in there already and Bella's been so generous with her time to share this all with us. So if you want more information, please make sure you jump to the show notes, you look at her website, her blog posts and her wonderful Constipation Masterclass because I know that'll help so many of you and the amazing discount she's given us our way. So thank you so much, Bella, for all your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Empowered Hormone Podcast. If you know a female who needs some empowerment, please forward, repost, tag or share and let's get women talking.